I spent seven years of my life in the immediate aftermath of September 11th doing this work, working with the Patriot Act, working with our law enforcement, working with the surveillance community to make sure that we keep America safe. From WNYC and New Jersey Public Radio, it's the Christie Tracker. National security is a fundamental right. I'm the only person on this stage who's actually filed applications under the Patriot Act. Would you rather have the Boston bombing where people were not under surveillance and people were killed in Maine? I'm David First. Coming up, Governor Christie spends a tremendous amount of time on the trail talking about prosecuting terrorists when he was U.S. Attorney for New Jersey. With three of the men who were convicted of plotting a terrorist attack on Fort Dix back in a New Jersey courtroom this week, we're going to look back on a case that Christie talks about as one of the highlights of his career. But we begin today with a number, 261. That's how many days Governor Christie spent out of New Jersey in 2015, you know, while he was serving as the state's governor. As Christie prepares to take a break from campaigning and appear in Trenton to deliver his annual State of the State speech next week, we are joined by New Jersey Public Radio's Matt Katz. Welcome back. Hi there, David. With uh, the governor spending most of his time in Iowa and New Hampshire and uh, TV studios, does he know much about the state of New Jersey at this point? That's a great question. I guess we'll find out in his speech. I mean, People tell me that state government has basically ground to a halt. Uh, The two most prominent cabinet members, the attorney general and the state treasurer, have not only not been confirmed by the legislature, they haven't even formally been nominated by Christie. Uh, The Supreme Court is missing a justice. There are no nominees there either. Um, None of the nitty-gritty deal-makings about major policy matters seems to be going on. The pension system and the transportation uh, trust fund, which repairs roads, they're, they're both nearly bankrupt or effectively bankrupt. So there's not much really happening in terms of the governance of New Jersey. So it'll be interesting what he says in that speech. Well, we've been talking a lot over this past year about the toll Christie's presidential run is taking on the ability of the government to function effectively in New Jersey. But we haven't talked much about the actual cost in dollars and cents to New Jersey taxpayers. How is it looking? Getting costs for what we're really talking about here is security and Christie's security detail. And getting answers about anything regarding the security detail, particularly how much taxpayers spend on it, has always been a complicated proposition because the response is always security. We can't tell you because it could hinder our ability to safely protect him. But the governor is traveling so much that it has become, in my mind, an important question for taxpayers. How much does it cost to send state police around the country with the governor? I was able to do some rough math, and I'm not much of a uh, math person, which is why I do this for a living. But I was able to come up with some guesstimates. And I was able to talk to some people who were able to help me a little bit about how this thing works. All right. So with the understanding that you are not a mathematician, uh, if you take into account um, gas, let's say uh, car rental fees in Iowa, hotel rooms, air travel, uh, salaries for state troopers uh, you know, on his uh, security detail, what do you come up with? My guesstimate is approximately a million dollars. It depends what you determine is 
campaign related or government related. It's all sort of, you know, mushed together. Like the governor is going to get security detail if he's in New Jersey. Would they be working as much time? Do we know how much overtime? The the Christie administration changed the rules so we're not allowed to know what state troopers get in overtime. So I'm not sure if they're getting overtime. Then there's gas. I mean, they'd be using gas in New Jersey, but, you know, they also took him from Chicago to Des Moines a couple of weeks ago after his flight to Des Moines got canceled. They rented cars for that. Who's paying for that? I'm not sure. And you don't know if the campaign is reimbursing any of this to the state. Nobody would say. I mean, I asked Kevin Roberts, the governor's uh, official spokesman at the governor's office in Trenton, and he said because of a pending lawsuit, he wouldn't really be able to give me any more details. He referred me to the state police who have yet to get back to me. With the state of the state speech looming, the criticism has really sharpened in recent weeks over how much time the governor of New Jersey is spending out of New Jersey. And, and you know, in part, he brought some of the most recent attacks on himself when he criticized Senator Marco Rubio for missing a vote on a year-end budget bill. Only in Washington could you have the guts to stand up and say, I'm against something, that you have a vote to vote no on, and then just not go. And then put out a press release after it gets passed and say, this is why I was opposed to it. Well, dude, show up to work. Senator Rubio saw an opportunity to pounce, and he took it. Chris Christie's a funny guy, but he's never in New Jersey. He's gone half the time. The gloves really came off in the form of a pair of attack ads. These were produced by the Super PAC supporting Senator Rubio. Chris Christie could well be Obama's favorite Republican governor. Why? Christie's record. There's a taste of the first. Here's a little bit of the second. New Jersey has the nation's highest tax burden. It's next to the bottom in job growth. And Christie's close aides are under criminal indictment. Chris Christie. High taxes, weak economy, scandals. These ads just had it all. The Obama hug, Bridgegate, New Jersey's economy. It's all there. It's amazing. This is a guy who was dead to rights over the summer. And now he is now seen as a major threat. You now have Rubio, Trump, and Kasich really teeing off on him. And it kind of makes Christie a little bit giddy. I mean, now he's a player. Now he's really in this thing. And he almost sounded giddy uh, when he was responding to this on Bloomberg Politics. I just wonder what happened to the Marco who so indignantly looked at Jeb Bush and said, um, I'm, I guess someone must have convinced you that going negative against me helps you. I guess that same person must now have convinced Marco that going negative against Chris Christie is what he needs to do. There's not a fight that the governor doesn't think he can win. So if he's mixing it up with Marco, uh, I don't think that scares him. I think he thinks that he can take care of Marco with one hand tied behind his back. You say there's not a fight he thinks he can't win, but he he seems to have still shied away from a real fight with Donald Trump. Um, Yeah, he doesn't. um, I don't think he sees an interest in fighting Trump right now. He doesn't necessarily think um, that's a battle that he needs to have. And it would become a major distraction. And that's not necessarily something that Christie wants just yet. Matt Katz covers Governor Christie for New Jersey Public Radio and WNYC. His book, American Governor Chris Christie's Bridge to Redemption, comes out January 19th. Thanks a lot, Matt. Thank you, David. Thanks. For me, being seven years as the U.S. attorney in New Jersey, immediately after September 11th, terrorism is not theoretical. 
This is the Christie Tracker Podcast. I'm David First. Governor Christie talks about his time as U.S. Attorney for New Jersey a lot. I'm a former federal prosecutor. I fought terrorists and won. As a former federal prosecutor, I was appointed U.S. Attorney by President Bush. This is the difference between actually having been a federal prosecutor, actually doing something. Now, listen, I'm a former federal prosecutor. I was the U.S. Attorney in New Jersey. Over the past few weeks, much has been written about the way Christie talks about his accomplishments as U.S. Attorney. In particular, the Washington Post, the Star-Ledger, and the New York Times have questioned whether Christie has been inflating his resume when he talks about prosecuting terrorists. We prosecuted two of the biggest terrorism cases in the world and stopped Fort Dix from being attacked by six American radicalized Muslims from a mosque in New Jersey. Some argue it's flat out wrong to say Christie worked on two of the biggest terrorism cases in the world. And others question the ethics of the way those cases were conducted. Critics say both involved FBI entrapment of people who never intended to commit crimes in the first place. Among the men who were tried and convicted in the Fort Dix case were three brothers, undocumented immigrants who had escaped from the former Yugoslavia and were living in New Jersey. They're currently serving life sentences in federal prisons for their role in plotting an attack. Today, the brothers returned to New Jersey to appear separately in a Camden courtroom to challenge their convictions. They claim their attorneys violated their constitutional rights when they did not allow them to testify during their original trial. Here now to talk about the brothers is Murtaza Hussein, a reporter for The Intercept who has written extensively about their involvement in this case. Murtaza, welcome. Well, thank you for having me. Back in May of 2007, then U.S. Attorney Chris Christie announced the arrests of the Fort Dix Six, five of whom would go on to be tried and convicted, and he described a truly scary homegrown terror plot. We brought criminal complaints today against six defendants involved in a plot to bring a violent attack on military and civilian personnel at Fort Dix here in the state of New Jersey. Can you tell us about these brothers and uh, what they were accused and convicted of doing? So the Duca brothers, uh, Dratan, Shane, and Elgevir Duca, they were undocumented Albanian immigrants from the former Yugoslavia living in New Jersey. Uh, They'd grown up in Brooklyn, and they had been running a roofing business in Cherry Hill, New Jersey at the time of their arrests. In 2006, the Dukas, along with a few friends, had gone on a boys' weekend in the Poconos and made a video of themselves. You know, they were doing things guys do when they go on vacation. They were riding horses, they were climbing trees, and they were shooting guns. And when they had taken this video to a local circuit city to make copies for everyone who had attended... The local employees at the Circuit City had seen the contents of the video, and when they saw the guys at the shooting range, they'd seen these sort of uh, swarthy, bearded guys shooting guns, and they'd become alarmed, and they'd contacted the FBI and said, you know, this may be something uh, scary. It wasn't just the the visual of them shooting guns. There was uh, audio on that video as well that was disturbing. Right. They had... uh, They were Muslims, and they were riding horses and shooting guns. And during both those activities, they were saying Allahu Akbar, which is something which people have associated with terrorism psychologically uh, because of the actions of certain terrorist groups in the United States. But it's quite common culturally among Muslims to say that uh, when you're doing things, sporting events or things like that. And the FBI initiated an investigation based on 
this video, which lasted for about 18 months and involved intense surveillance of the brothers and their friends, the introduction of informants into their lives. In about 2007, they were introduced to a man named Mahmoud Omar, who, unbeknownst to them, was a government informant, who started hanging out with them and spending time with them, as well as another man named Mohammed Schnur, who was a bit younger, about 22 years old at the time. Over months and months, uh, Mahmoud Omar befriended the boys. He started to hang out with them. He was an older guy. He bonded with them over their interest in cars. And over this time, he was also sort of uh, insinuating various things to them that maybe we should do something about the wars or we should uh, respond to the U.S. government's actions in various places in the world. They did not were not aware of this, but he was trying to goad them into saying things which would help build a case against them for being terrorists. You say they went on a boys' weekend to the Poconos. How old were the brothers at the time of this surveillance? So the boys were in their late 20s when this uh, first happened. And okay, so maybe we shouldn't call them boys if they were in their late 20s. These are, these are men. Right. They were young, young men uh, in their late 20s. And the surveillance lasted for about 18 months or so. And over the course of these 18 months, Mahmoud Omar and another informant was later introduced to the case as well, too, Besnik Bakali, both of whom spent a lot of time with the, these guys trying to talk to them about various issues, and for the most time, talking about normal guy stuff. And then also trying to insinuate, you know, get them to say provocative things about foreign policy or the wars. And notably, none of them ever really did. Like, the Fort Dix case was about an attack on a military base, but none of the Duca brothers in this time were ever recorded saying anything about attacking a military base or expressing willingness to engage in any terrorism. The philosophy that supports and encourages jihad around the world against Americans came to live here in New Jersey and threaten the lives of our citizens through these defendants. The other men who were convicted, they are on record, they are on tape talking about a plot, correct? Well, even there, there's some nuance. There were two other men separate from the Duca brothers who were convicted in this case. Uh, one of them was Mohammed Schnur, who was a 22-year-old, and he spent a lot of time with the informant Mahmoud Omar. And Mohammed Schnur did agree to some theoretic idea of doing something with this informant. There was another man who was also involved, Sardar Tartar, who was also talking to Mahmoud Omar, and Sardar became so alarmed by the things that Mahmoud Omar, the FBI informant, was saying, he attempted to turn him into local police. And he tried connecting with the FBI to say that, you know, I think this guy might be a terrorist, and no one ever really followed up with him. So he was convicted, ultimately, of involvement in the plot, but he had tried to turn in the informant himself. And the Duca, Duca brothers themselves were never, you know, all that recording and all those months and months of surveillance, they were never once recorded saying, anything about a plot, anything about attacking Fort Dix, or anything even remotely related to terrorism. But the, these are guys who kept interacting with a, a paid government informant who, um, over the course of a year, kept asking them about uh, things like jihad, and they kept interacting with this person. They were uh, undocumented immigrants living in New Jersey, and ultimately they were arrested during an illegal under-the-table gun purchase involving AK-47s, uh, M16s and handguns. Right. So the chronology of the case is really, it's really remarkable. So initially, the FBI was clued into them after someone called police upon seeing their vacation video, and they began surveilling them. 
And at this time, it was very apparent that, uh, you know, any amount of checking up on them or surveillance could see that there was not a terrorist group involved. There was not a terrorist plot extant at the time. Uh, there was nothing like that. So, But instead of, you know, investigating that, checking it out and moving on, it seems that the government just hooked on to them and saying, you know, there has to be something here. And they kept surveilling them. They kept introducing informants into their lives. And after months and months, over a year of this uh, extremely close scrutiny, they still didn't have anything related to terrorism. So instead of trying to hook them into a plot, they set up this fake gun deal through the informant, who again did not say anything about terrorism. He just said, you know, you guys like going to shooting ranges, you like guns, you can't legally buy guns because you're undocumented, although you're on the path to citizenship now. I can help you buy some so you don't have to wait in line at the Poconos anymore. And again, he did not say anything about a plot. He did, they, And they said, okay, you know, we're interested. We're friends now, so we think. We'll, we'll take a look at the guns. And Mahmoud Omar gave a list of guns to one of the guys involved, Tony. And when Tony got the list, he saw there were things like rocket launchers and other things on this uh, gun list. And he actually said, no, I don't want any of these. Like, what, what is all this? And is everything okay? Is there anything I need to know? And Mahmoud Omar was like, yeah, that's fine. No, no, we just, uh, I just want to offer you some things. I have a friend who can get you these. And in the recording, you can actually hear him say, Tony, when the deal is being sort of finalized, oh, great, next time we go to the Poconos, we don't have to wait in line anymore. What was the evidence that supported their convictions as terrorists? Separately, not connected to them, Mahmoud Omar was also hanging out with Mohammed Schnur. And Mohammed Schnur was going along with the things that Mahmoud Omar was saying. So ultimately, at trial, the non-existence of their own statements was sort of uh, explained by saying that, well, we don't have them on record saying this, but someone else was talking to the informant and saying X, Y, and Z. At trial, at conviction, it was sort of tacitly conceded that there was not a lot of direct evidence at their sentencing. The judge said, you know, there is not really direct evidence of their involvement, but nonetheless, that's not a barrier to convicting them as being terrorists, and that ultimately is what happened. So they were convicted for the gun deal and on the statements of a third party. The gun deal is something that they committed a crime. You're not allowed buying firearms privately if you're not an American citizen. But does that equate to terrorism and this really fantastic plot which they're convicted of, which would have been a suicide mission attacking a military base? Uh, the miles of difference between that is just, uh, it can't be overstated. The way it was spun in the media that a terrorist group had accumulated weapons and was ready to do an attack is so divergent from the actual raw recordings and footage and the interactions between the informant and the Duca brothers. The way it's being spun even today by Chris Christie in the media is just, uh, it's really quite galling. Well, speaking on uh, Fox News Sunday with host Chris Wallace this weekend, Christie was talking about uh, the Fort Dix case again, and he sought to make a a distinction, uh, saying that it wasn't right to characterize it as a sting operation. The Fort Dix 6 case was not a sting case. Um, Once we received the intelligence that was done from the hard work of the people in the FBI and our office, we were then able to monitor those folks, but the plans were already underway for them to attack Fort Dix. But they were under surveillance surveillance for months, were they not, sir? But, Chris, that's our job. I mean, would you rather have the Boston bombing where people were not under surveillance and people were killed and maimed? No. And those folks were planning for quite some time, too. That what we did with Fort Dix, these were people who had already begun to plan an attack. They'd already begun to plan an attack. They'd begun to train. We had video of them training 
for this attack. We then began to surveil them. That's what modern law enforcement is supposed to be, something the Obama administration obviously doesn't understand. And I do understand it because I've done it. And so to try to minimize the Fort Dix 6 case it is being done by the New York Times, who, by the way, eight weeks ago called for me to drop out of the race. So I hardly think they're an objective source. Christie says this was not a sting operation. This was not an entrapment, that this plan to attack Fort Dix was already underway before any surveillance occurred. You know, that is an absolutely risable mischaracterization of uh, the events of this case. And it's factually incorrect that there was such an operation underway and e- before surveillance. And even after surveillance, there was not such an operation underway. So that is factually incorrect with regards to the case. And anyone who reads our article or goes back to the actual raw data of the trial transcripts or the surveillance can see that that clearly there's no ambiguity. That's that's not what happened. And I think that because of the scrutiny this case is now receiving, uh, there's a need to defend it or to characterize it in a way which is more favorable. That simply is not the case. And not only was it a sting operation, there was not any plot in existence until the government got involved. And even after the government's involvement, there was no plot involving the Duca brothers. And these men are doing life sentences in extremely harsh circumstances in prison based on a case which, uh, contrary to Governor Christie's description, does not comport with uh, uncovering an active terrorism plot and certainly is not comparable to the Boston bombing or similar such events. Governor Christie says law enforcement certainly did not get it wrong in this case. I'm sure we're going to continue to hear more about uh, the Fort Dix 5 or the Fort Dix 6, as Governor Christie continues to call it, in the months ahead. Murtaza Hussein, reporter with The Intercept, thanks very much for speaking with us. Well, thank you for having me. The Christie Tracker Podcast is a production of WNYC and New Jersey Public Radio. Thanks to associate producer Joseph Capriglione. Our theme music is by 29-Hour Music People. You can subscribe to the Christie Tracker Podcast on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and you can follow Matt Katz at MattKatz00. That's Matt, K-A-T-Z. I'm David First, and for anyone miffed about the amount of time he's spending out of state campaigning for president... The governor told Fox News Sunday, you were warned. I was very honest with the people in New Jersey in 2013 when I ran for re-election. I told them there was a possibility I would run for president, and so I've told them the truth, and if they're a little miffed about it now, I completely understand that.